0: Welcome, everyone, to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week is an accountant turned professional gambler. He has been betting professional as an advantage player, DFS, and sports betting for the last eight years. I had the pleasure of meeting him for the first time last February, and he's one hell of a guy. Please welcome Will. Will, thanks for coming on, brother.
1: Thanks, Spanky. Yeah, an absolute pleasure to be on.
0: So, Will, I always start off with how life was, how was life grown up?
1: Yeah, I had a very fortunate, very British upbringing in the Cheshire countryside, surrounded by farms and uh, lots of our own animals, you know, we had dogs, donkeys, even the odd hedgehog, uh, a very... very close family uh they gave me a very good education a very good upbringing and yeah really really nothing to suggest that they were raising a child that was gonna turn
0: out to be a professional gambler (laughs) so (laughs) did you play sports at all or did you were you uh yeah i did i did play quite
1: a lot of sports at school um i guess the closest thing the closest hint there was that i might end up being A professional gambler is I I was quite good at chess. I played a lot of chess growing up and I know a lot of the skills there apply over that same sort of strategic thinking applies a little bit to my job now and there was this game called cribbage that was really popular at my school and I took to that quite quickly as well. My dad also he was quite into horses but I just thought it was dumb like he would own small shares and horses and follow them and in races and really enjoy that and I never really got it. I think the only time I'd ever watch horses with him was when he was smoking a cigar. I just enjoyed the smell of the cigar so much that I would put up with the, <laughs> the same experience of, of watching horses at the same time. Uh, but actually my my love for that smell actually grew off pretty quickly as well and so then yeah I just stopped watching horses altogether.
0: together. So you said you had a great education. Um, after school what was your first or maybe during school what was your first introduction to some type of a gambling uh... yeah I remember I remember
1: at uni my some of my friends this was this was during the poker boom I think early 2000s something like that and I remember some of my friends just they would they would get home at night half drunk and just want to go online and play poker and again, I just thought this was the dumbest thing, right? I knew they were losing money and I didn't enjoy it at all. But spanky, I just wish that I'd seen the other side of things at that point, right? I could have started my gambling career, my passion in life um, about five years earlier, if I just, if the switch had clicked a little bit and I would realized that there was this game poker that everyone was playing at that point, right? It was peak poker boom, a lot of soft money around. and I had a lot of dead time when i was at uni that i could have just applied to playing poker but unfortunately i didn't that that switch didn't click for me at the time and it took me a bit longer before i really got into professional gambling
0: so when you were at university did you like? you know you said you played cribbage chess did you ever uh, play any of these things for money was money ever involved or you know just small stakes at all or no yeah no,
1: no money nothing like that and actually my my chess career i had a bad attitude about it as well i remember I was the, the number one board for chess in my school from quite a young age. And, you know, I quite like that. I quite liked the fact that I was the best. And then in my final year at school, when I thought, you know, this should be my peak year, the last year that I'm number one board, some French guy showed up and he was just in the final year for some reason, I think his mom wanted him to learn English or something before he went off to uni. But he, um, yeah, he was a lot better than me and he had all these openings that I'd never seen before. And then all of a sudden, I just didn't want to play chess anymore. Thankfully, I've kind of got over that really defeatist attitude now. But yeah, I think uh, it's it cost me quite
0: a lot along the way. Yeah, chess, you know, myself, I loved playing chess when I was a kid. And, and it was such a, a great introduction. And it kind of helped in, in, introduce myself to board gaming. I don't know, have you ever been into some type of a board game? Uh or any board games where you just try to solve these little mini puzzles that only take a few hours. Yeah. I, I, I never really developed
1: the the patience for it. I don't think I know Spanky you're big into your board games and you did a fantastic job at the last ski trip hosting those board games as well.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I know everyone appreciated it, but I, I know I've never really applied myself outside of chess anyway to any of of the board games, even though when I play them, I enjoy them. I just, I get fidgety, I
0: think. Gotcha, so, all right, so you graduate um, university, and what happens next? So,
1: yeah, this is the start. Just once I finished uni, I flew to the US to do a three month road trip with one of my uni friends. And on the flight to New York, he recommends something he's come to regret since then or in the, certainly during the road trip that followed on the flight over, he recommended to me that I watched this film called 21 and he knew that it was something that would just appeal to the way, you know, he knew me well and he knew that this was going to appeal to the things that I'm interested in. And he was right. And he regretted it because now he had this guy he was traveling with who Upon landing in New York, he didn't want to go to the Empire State Building or go to <laughs> Times Square. He wanted to find, you know, I wanted to find the the nearest Barnes & Noble store so I could get my hand on any blackjack book they had and I could start learning how to count cards as, as quickly as possible.
0: Wow. So you, the bug bit you on that flight and, um, and and you and you just caught that fever. You just needed to just feed that that you wanted to learn so much more about it. Yeah, and I knew I knew on this road trip we were gonna
1: pass through Vegas at some point. So I had in my mind, and this is the way that I kind of appeased the guy that I was traveling with. I was like, Chris, you know, we're, we're gonna make so much money counting cards when we get to Vegas, that all of this, instead of me driving, I'm sitting in the passenger seat, trying to learn to count cards or trying to read the, the latest book. And he's stuck there driving with no one to talk to. And I'm like, don't worry, Chris, it's all gonna be worth it when we get to Vegas. I'm gonna <laughs> pay for our entire trip.
0: I love it. Any, well, as, as I, did, I know you probably bought a bunch of books. Did any one book stand out? Um, well, the first book I bought was actually not one I've really
1: ever seen since then. And that was the Mensa Guide to Blackjack or something like that. And it was written by one of the guys on the MIT team that appeared in that movie, 21. But no, I think, I remember I got black, so this is, this is the extent that I would go to to get hold of these blackjack books because Barnes & Noble didn't have them all. And so I'd go online and I'd see that, okay, I could order this book. The one I'm thinking of now is called Blackjack Attack. Uh, where am I going to get it delivered to, Spanky? Because, you know, we're moving, we're moving yeah. around all the whole time on this road trip. And so I'd call up these families that I knew we were going to stay with at some point on the road trip who I'd never met right we'd we'd like been introduced to them through friends or friends of friends and I'd be like I'd call them up I'd be like hey you know really looking forward to coming staying with you in a couple of weeks and they'd be like oh yeah you know we're really excited I'm like oh is it all right if I order this blackjack book to (laughs) you I
0: didn't
1: didn't tell them it was a blackjack book I was like oh is it all right if I order this book to your house and they were like sure you know no problem and sometimes they would ask me what the book was and that would be kind of awkward on the phone (laughs) This crazy person was coming to the house, and then other times I just like get to the house and try and avoid opening it in front of them.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's great. Then
1: it was something else, yeah.
0: Oh man, that's good stuff. So, man, so, you, so this is a three-month trip, and mm-hmm. you're, you're reading this. And did you start first applying what you learned when you got to Vegas, or did you hit any other casinos in other towns in the states?
1: Yeah, no, I we waited until we got to Vegas, um and I, I remember I had. I set aside what I thought was plenty of money to turn into tens of thousands of dollars. I set aside $300 spanky, which clearly I hadn't learned about about bankroll management or bankroll sizing at this point. And I remember we we stayed at Mirage, I think because it had quite good blackjack conditions. And I started back counting, which is when you don't actually sit down at the, the blackjack table to play until the count gets high enough until you recognize there's a significant enough advantage for you to play. And I lost like 200 of the $300 within 15 minutes or something, and was 80% sure they cheated me, right? 80% I was like, you know, this is just a stitch up. I have the maths in my favor. There's no way this casino could be winning this money off me. So yeah, I didn't have appreciation for bankroll management. I didn't have an appreciation for variance at that point. And I was just chalking up this loss to cheating. And then, yeah, this is just speaking more spanky to the lengths that I would go to to kind of pursue my passion at this point. I remember hearing from the pit boss that the $10 minimum table became a $5 minimum table at like 4 a.m. in the morning. So I literally, with my remaining $100, woke up at 4 a.m. in the morning went down to find the $5 minimum table, and proceeded to lose the remaining $100 of this $300 uh, bankroll that I'd set aside for the trip. And yeah, at that point, I was kind of thought that I'd be done with it, even though I'd loved it, and even though that it had grabbed me like nothing else I don't think had in my life until that point, I just kind of assumed that was it. And I'd go back to England and pursue my job as an accountant, and forget about professional gambling for the rest of my life
0: but you didn't forget about it so when did it creep back in
1: yeah so I you know
0: the road trip finished and I got
1: back home and I couldn't put it out of my head the whole blackjack thing so I started going online as you do when you've got no friends that want to talk to you about your your passion you try and find people online that do And I came across on one of these forums that I don't think exists anymore. It was called Blackjack Info, I think. I came across an advert for a team in London that was looking to recruit people. And they were willing, you know, I didn't have any money to play with at this point. And they were willing, it seemed like in the advert anyway, they were willing to sponsor people to go out and play in London casinos. So I... I was like, wow, this is amazing. I emailed the guy, I don't think I could sleep that night waiting for his response. And he did reply really quickly. And he said, you know, can you meet in a cafe in London in a week's time, something like that. And I was still at my family home, which is actually where I am right now as well. And that is, you know, is two hours from London. So I made an excuse with my parents as to why I was going down to London. I didn't want to tell them. I was meeting a stranger in a cafe about some crazy blackjack concept that he wanted to try and persuade me to do, so I just went down. I made up an excuse and I went to meet this guy, and it was in this underground ca- cafe in central London. He kind of looked like uh, like a wizard, like someone like Dumbledore might look. You know, everything <laughs> you, you might kind of sort of expect for something like this. He fit the stereotype perfectly. And yeah, he told me, look, if you go away and you learn this system and these techniques and you come back and you pass these tests, we'll sponsor you. You can go and play in London casinos. And the deal then was that I would keep a third or 30% and they would keep the remaining 70%. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna gonna give it my best shot. And actually most of what he said for me to go away and learn. I kind of had learned in the US already. So there wasn't much for me to brush up on. I went away. I learned a little bit more, came back, did the tests, passed the test. And I also was now in this fortunate position where I was decided to take a year out before I started my accountancy job in London. So I had about nine months to really go at this hard, you know, to, to really take it on full time. And I think it was at about that point that I decided I had to tell my parents as well what was going on because I couldn't really hide the secret for that much time.
0: Wow. So, what, what this is, this is unbelievable. I love this type of stuff. What, uh, when, when you met the guy, um, he looks like a wizard. Um, you know, everything's like first impressions or everything because these guys are going to trust you with their money. Yeah. Um, and they're going to hold their money. How, how, you know, did you ever, did, did you find out? Later on, what he thought of you, like you know, of course, you know, or did you become friendly with him so that you could ask him later on, you know, how what what made you, you know, check me off and 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 trust me? I think you know, if you put out an
1: advert for a blackjack team, I think they'd even put something on what's that site called what Reddit? Um, Craigslist, I know there you go, Craigslist, they'd even put something on Craigslist as well. And I think I really stood out amongst all the people that came to them because you got some seriously strange people i think coming saying yeah i want to be part of your blackjack team right and i was actually in a position where i knew the kind of things he wanted from me already before we got to the interview so i could speak with a level of kind of knowledge that none of the other applicants could and so i think that put me in a good situation yeah and but they are taking a big risk right they are trusting their money with someone like and and they could just run off with it. Or they could just make up that they lost a load of money when they actually won some money. Because after a while, they don't even follow you into the casino. They just let you go and do your thing and trust in your integrity to report your results accurately. But also, you know, my parents, one of their concerns was, well, what happens if you go and lose money? Are they gonna demand that you, and, 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 and then you decide you wanna stop? Are they gonna come, come after you and say, hey, you lost us 10K. We want that back before we're going to let you leave the team or something. And so it was—it was a case of me trusting them a little bit as well. And I had to tell my parents that I didn't think that was what they were going to do. I was—I trusted them, and this was just how a blackjack team worked.
0: So can you, just, if you don't, because I've never been part of something like this, uh, you know. I'm so, a, so how, you know, what kind of system did they ask you to learn? You know, there's so many books that you read, um, and how big the team was—the team. Yeah, um, so the system was just the
1: the typical one, which is the high-low system. It's the one that you probably, if you pick up a book on blackjack, then it's the most likely system they're going to recommend you use. It captures most of the value of card counting while still retaining quite a good level of simplicity. That means you don't have to be, you don't have to practice for that long and you're less likely to make mistakes in the casino. The team was... I mean, it changed, it fluctuated quite a lot. I think probably at its biggest, it was about 20 of us and most of the time about 10.
0: Beautiful. So, I, when I, you know, I also was, I never really applied it as much. But not, when I was studying blackjack, I learned high-low. But, you know, to get the true count, you have to look at the discard tray and divide, mm-hmm. everything. So then knockout blackjack, I remember, came out and, uh, and that was like an unbalanced count. But it was a true, you know, it was always a true count. You never had to do the division um, hmm. There was a team I, I know that would have discard trays and they would look at different levels of discard trays to just be able to estimate it within maybe one or two or whatever, how many cards, how many cards were in that discard tray. Was that a skill that you had to pick up in time or was that something that you could train yourself to know to master that high low uh, effectively?
1: Yeah, both spanky. You know That's something I train my eyes on at home and then something that you just get better at with time as well. Uh, It's quite a, you know, it's quite a, these things, they just take practice and they, they can, they can be practiced at home, right? Counting cards, dealing to yourself, that is a very good way to prepare yourself for when you get into the casino. And it's the same with, with discard trees. Now there's always going to be a bit of a adaptation period when you get into the casino and you try and actually implement those skills that you've practiced. But in my experience, it doesn't take that long.
0: All right, so you're part of this blackjack team. You don't even start your job from university now. Um, what happens? Like, do you do you wind up get get a job? So, like, what happens with the team? Are you doing both at the same time? Or? Yeah, yeah. So, well, actually,
1: when I started with the team, I went on this insanely bad run to begin with. Like, I, I remember I lost. I was still losing after 50 hours of play, which is it, it's definitely easily within the realms of probability that that can happen. Counting cards, your edge is not huge. And yeah, you're, you're, there are only a few big betting opportunities every hour, so you can easily go through some nasty swings. And I remember chatting to the guy, that, that guy Dumbledore or Don was actually his name. And he said, you know, 50 hours is nothing. Let's let's get you to 100 hours and see where you're at there. So I was like, cool, that's great went back out there, played for another 50 hours, still losing. And this is still before I started my job, my full-time job in London. And I remember I was going on a trip somewhere unrelated to blackjack. I was going, I can't remember where I was going, I think with a friend somewhere, something like that. And Don said to me, okay, let's review things when you get back, right? And I could tell at this point, and understandably so for them, who I'm still basically a stranger to them that they've trusted with their money, and this guy's now losing money. Is he, you know, is he stealing from us? Is he rubbish at his job? Have we not trained him properly? Have we not tested him properly?
0: What kind so of I, amount? what kind of amounts are we talking? How, if you don't mind me asking. Not, not huge, not
1: huge, thank I think I was down like 7,000, 8,000 after 100 hours, but I wasn't betting very high stakes. And so it was quite a, it was now quite a statistically significant result. And I was starting to doubt my ability as well, right? I was like, what am I doing wrong? I kept checking things. I would go into casinos with other guys to make sure that, you know, we were agreeing on what the count was and things like that. But the results just weren't coming. But I still, you know, I wanted it so bad. I remember like walking through one of the London parks after I played in one of the casinos in London, just thinking, why is this not happening for me, right? This is my passion. This is something I want so bad and I just can't generate the results. Anyway, I got back from this trip. I contacted Don again, and he wasn't very receptive and for the reasons that I, you know, was suspecting. And eventually he said to me, All right, you go away, you learn the Wong Halves count, which is a more complicated count than the high low count, and you pass a test for that, you can come back and play on the team again. And it's kind of, it was kind of silly to me because the long halves, it's a lot more complicated for not much extra edge. But in hindsight, it was quite a good test for how much I wanted it from him. Like if, if I was stealing money from him or if I was bad at my job, then that might've discouraged me from continuing. But if I really wanted it and I, you know this was, a, this was not a question of my integrity, this was just a question of bad luck, I would learn the wong halves and I would go and pass a test and that's what I did, right? So I learned the one house. I started playing again, and then just by statistical chance in the other direction, I could not lose. Like I, I then played for like the remaining three months. I quickly wiped out that seven thousand. I think in about another two months of play, I was up about forty thousand for them, and. I think I was then going away on another trip with friends. You know, I, my year out wasn't just about playing blackjack. I wanted to go and explore the world as well. <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. But yeah, I said, when I come back and when I start working in London, full time as an accountant, I want to carry on
0: playing with you guys part time as well. And that that's basically what I did. Wow. That's, that's great. I, I love this when you said that you walked through the park and just to be able to, bring things together try to get grounded and say what's happening because you know a lot of people would have quit then well a lot of people would have said no this isn't for me or I can't take this and it's it's sometimes when you just take a step back take a deep breath and um and get it together and say you know what I got this and that's you know it's not how many times you get knocked down how many times you get up and um and I you know I commend you for that that's great I love that's like a great comeback, a mini comeback story, so to speak. Thanks,
1: Frankie. And I think, you know, it's easy to go through periods like that as sports bettors as well. We can get onto the sports betting stuff like that too. But as a professional gambler in any discipline, you really need to be prepared to take the big hits, right? And you have to be able to, this is obviously why bankrolls management's important. You have to be liquid enough to come back from those big hits and you have to be mentally strong enough to come back from them as well.
0: Great point. Anybody listening out there, that's such a solid point. And this is a pro that's been doing this now for a long time. To be able to come back from those big hits is what separates the guys that have become professional and the guys that just fizzle out. Okay, so you're an accountant now, but you're playing blackjack on the side. Um, when when are you like, accountant? I, can't, I don't need this no more. You know what, I mean? what happens I think, then? Yeah,
1: I had a three-year contract with – uh, and one of the big four accountancy companies, and I think about two months into it, I was ready to quit. Right? <laughs> I, mean, I, was still, I was still making money, more money from playing blackjack than I was at my accountancy job, and it was in a fraction of the time that I was spending at my accountancy job, and I was enjoying it. You know, I I remember like walking into the office Monday mornings, right, and just thinking, this is crazy, Spanky. What am I doing here? Right, I hate this job. I hate. I was a tax accountant. You know, you prepare these tax accounts, do these and, audits, and this is what so, you stu- this is what you yeah.
0: studied in university to be able to account? I, yeah, I did
1: study a bit of accountancy at university, um, but it was my degree was economics. Gotcha. And so it was just a small, a few small accountancy modules, and actually, the I didn't mind the the accountancy exams. Right, I didn't mind learning those techniques. It Feels a little bit like a puzzle, like a game to me so all those exams you know we had to do more exams when we got to the company itself as well and those were okay it was just the the box ticking and the reviewing of sheets and making sure everything's balancing the yeah i hope, I hope none of my former like managers are listening to this right
0: yeah um, well it,
1: take it out on them
0: <laughs> it was just wasn't for you you know you're not a nine to five guy yeah
1: yeah, so I I would continue playing quite a lot part-time and actually I left that, that team that originally sponsored me once I'd saved up enough to start playing on my own bankroll without having to split anything with them. And I started joining up with, I started also combining my bankroll with other UK players that were kind of lone wolves like me and we just wanted to share results and pool capital. It's like one of the ways you can, Leverage more out of your bankroll in card counting in blackjack. And then, because in the back of my mind, I was thinking I'm going to be done with accountancy as soon as my contract, my three year contract is over. I started networking with, through some of the UK guys that I've met, I started getting in touch with some of the US, the full time US players, with a view to moving out to the US. Hopefully, if I could make it work, if I could you know, save up enough and kind of think, convince myself that it is something I could make a success of, then that was going to be
0: my aim. So how, how like you, know, like, you know, in order to be able to network now, you're out of the team, how does one, because, you know, you're an expert at this, well, you know, how to, you're very good at networking. How do you now meet all these lone wolves, these other independent guys? Were they former members of the old team? Mm. Or, like, you know, how does one, because it's not like there's ads in the paper saying, "Hey, you know, we want." Or it doesn't really. That's it's a rare thing, um, to, to for blackjack players to find each other. Was mm. it more internet forums? What exactly? How did you get that?
1: Yeah, it was. It was mostly internet forums, right? And and you post enough on there, and you post sensible things, you're going to make connections, and people are going to realize that you're not crazy, and that you're worth perhaps getting to know better. Right. And and sometimes just asking people for stuff. Right. It, you know, you, you have to be willing to have someone say no to you a few times. Right. And then eventually someone goes, yeah, sure. I can introduce you to that guy. Like and then you take it from there and you make sure that you that introduction, you don't screw it up and you're not a dick or whatever. Right. And hopefully later down the line, they they introduce you to someone else as well. And and that's kind of how it happens. It's hard for me to pinpoint any one particular strategy, right? It just kind of happens organically by perhaps asking for a few introductions, reaching out a little bit, and just being trying to to be a solid guy.
0: You know, when I interviewed Roxy Roxborough, he mentioned that one of the biggest things is to try to build a team, to try to know people and try to, you know, you can't do it alone. And I think that that's so important, what you just said, and, and, and to be able to, uh to to learn from others and to be able to pull together because to just be a lone wolf you only you have a ceiling you can't expand that much but when you're part of a team a synergy can get created and um and a lot of people in our gambling field let's just be honest are not socially um they're not social people you know a lot of them are socially inept to be frank um so it, it, I think it's important to be able for you, especially because you're one of the most social guys I think I've ever met. You're, you're, you know how to get along with people. You're, you're interacting, and then you're just a good guy. Um, th- you know, it, it, is that something that you always had in you, to be able to just walk up to somebody, say hello, or to be able to accept no for an answer? Um, how does somebody that's a little bit more in their shell come out of that? Any advice for that? Um. Wow. Yeah. I wish I thought about this before, but I I would start
1: off by saying, Spanky, I'm an introvert at heart as well. Right. I I would say if I'm not spending 75% of my time by myself, I I start to get like tired and cranky and just want to go home and put my feet up and stare at my computer for a bit.
0: Wow. that's That's a surprise for me. That's amazing.
1: Well, thanks. But and yeah, I don't I don't think it is something that comes naturally to me. I don't. I can't think of any, you know, one one thing I do think of when I'm trying to develop a relationship with someone, and this is maybe counter to what a lot of people do when they get into relation, when, when when they want an introduction to someone that is maybe they see as more successful than them or something, is I try to think about what can I do for them, right? Like, what is the thing that I have that they would want? not oh my god this guy is so famous he's made so much money you know how can i get him to tell me one of his plays or tell me how he you know made his money in this thing right i just focus on okay there's got to be something that i and this is actually one of the big benefits of having grown in, having grown up in the uk you know when i'm networking with these us guys a lot of them are curious about what's going on in the uk right like what are the casinos like there? Or in the sports betting world, like, you know, what can you bet in the sports books there? And so, the, yeah, I had a big leg up in that sense because I, I was more than happy to share that information with them and, and be upfront with them. But the principle still holds, right? If you can get in the mindset of when you're trying to meet new people and make connections with them, what can I do for them? And then you figure that thing out, the
0: rest kind of takes care of itself. I love it. Well said, my friend. Well said. So, okay, so now you're full-time now. You, you're networking with guys in the U.S. Um, do you make the trip now? Like, you know, do you yeah. come full-time to the U.S. to do this as a career? Yeah, so I finished my contract
1: at the accountancy company and quit the, day, the first day that I could while still getting my accountancy qualification, right?
0: And then I just flew to Vegas the next week. Let me stop you for a second. You said you quit, so you did, you did the whole three years. I did the whole three years. The whole three years. Now, was there any pressure from family, or was it internal pressure to say, "Listen, I want to get my accountancy. I want to have something to fall back on just in case this gambling thing doesn't work out." Um, where was there? Was it? Was it you? Was it a little bit of family saying, "Are you really going to gamble full? Be a professional gambler full time? What are you nuts?" How did, how did the decision to complete that um, work itself out? Yeah, you're pretty much dead on it there Spanky.
1: So having the conversation with my parents, you know, who, like I said at the start, were are very close family and very British family with you know British traits of being sensible and getting a good job and having a good career, these sort of things. So th- there was a kind of compromise that, look, I'm gonna finish my accountancy qualification. I'm gonna get my accountancy qualification. So if this whole crazy gambling thing does go tits up, I have something to fall back on, right? I've got a job that I can pretty much get straight away if I need to. It's well paid as soon as I have to come back. And so, yeah, that that was kind of the compromise. And that was why I decided to stick out, even though I hated it. And like I said, it drew a lot out of me. I stuck through it and saved up as much as, as I could from both my full-time job and the money that I was making part-time playing casinos as well so that I was in a position to then go to Vegas as soon as I finished and start playing full-time.
0: Beautiful. It's the perfect hedge. You know, just like in gambling, we're always hedging, and, and I think uh, that's what a great hedge. Just in case it didn't work out, you have something to fall back on. <laughs> All right, so you moved to Vegas, um, and this is the next, this is the second time you've been to Vegas since the first road trip? No, actually, so,
1: no. I, so the guy that I ended up living with in Vegas, another AP, another full-time professional gambler, as part of my networking, I, I got introduced to him a couple of years before. And I said to him, hey, I'm really interested in learning more about what it's like being an AP. I think we described what AP was a professional gambler, what it's like being an AP professional gambler, blackjack player in the US. If I flew out, if I took some holiday from my job in London and flew out, would you mind if I just like shadowed you or, or came with you on a couple of trips? And he was super nice about it. And he said, you know, not a problem at all. So I flew out to Colorado where he was based. We went and played some games in the Midwest it kind of went okay-ish came back to his place in Colorado and my plan I think I you know we played for about a week and my plan for the second week was to fly to Vegas by myself and look for accommodation and try and just try and you know figure out what the hell I was going to you know what my strategy was going to be when I moved there full-time at the end of my job in London and he was like I said super nice and so also, when I got back to his place in Colorado, before I flew to Vegas, he started looking through his mail at Spanky and thinking, okay, I need to find something for Will here. So he doesn't have to pay for a hotel. He's got a few coupons to get him going. And actually in the process of doing that, he just got super excited about the idea of going to Vegas and said, Will, I'm coming on the flight with you tomorrow. We're gonna to go to Vegas together and we're gonna go and play some more casino games. Wow. That, that was cool. And then we got there We started playing and it went really well, much better than the Midwest stuff had. And then he was kind enough to drive me around Vegas afterwards, looking at various properties as to where I might live when I moved out there. And he went, "Well, are you interested in getting a two-bedroom apartment, by the way, instead of a one-bed? And I was like, why? David, I can say his name, David. And he's like, well, I'm kind of interested in doing this Vegas thing as well. So we went for it, we got the two-bed, and... That was the guy that i then spent the next three years of my life with in vegas playing full-time and playing together
0: most of the time as well beautiful so uh that's um that's that's great and and this guy you just met on an internet forum it was it, it was an introduction through a mutual friend, through a mutual yeah. friend.
1: yeah and yeah i just try to maintain the contact through emails and then yeah pestered him enough to get him to agree to let me follow him around a bit while he's playing. And then we just kind of built a friendship from there.
0: All right. So now you're, you're playing with David full time. Are you guys doing, were playing at the same time? Are you, You're all pulling your bankrolls together? What's happening? Are, are, is there different shifts or how does it work? Yeah, a bit of everything.
1: So when we first moved out there, both of us were so motivated to make it work. Right? I had to prove to my family and my friends back home that I wasn't going crazy. And he was just naturally a very motivated guy, right? And the first six months, nine months, we pretty much were on call 24 seven, right? If, If I was sleeping, he was out scouting, or otherwise we were both out scouting, looking for games. And if any of us found something, we'd call the other person and we'd start playing. And usually, yeah, it was at the same table because at this point, I wasn't counting cards anymore. I was doing more advanced things. And a lot of those more advanced techniques are much better pulled off if you have more than one person at the table. You can kind of, luckily, David and I, we don't look a whole lot alike. You know, I'm British, he's American, he's a bit older than me. We could get away with not knowing each other, pretending we didn't know each other at the same table, at least initially. And that facilitated some of the the games we played as well.
0: Now, when you said scouting, um, what percentage of an AP's life would you say is scouting and what percentage is playing?
1: Yeah. Well, it depends what you're looking for, right? If you're looking for that that needle in the haystack, that massive game that's going to make or break your year, then you could be spending 99% of your time scouting and 1% actually playing. If you're just trying to card count, it's probably... 90% playing, 10% scouting, right? The moves we were doing at that time, so we were doing a lot of hole carding, I can say that. And that was probably 50-50, something like that. Especially at that time, because the move, the hole carding was not as well known when we first moved out to Vegas, especially you know, outside of traditional games. So there were a lot of soft opportunities a lot of people that hadn't been trained properly, and that meant that we didn't have to look as hard to find
0: stuff. Gotcha. Now, you know, traditionally, as an AP, um, uh, you know, uh, a Caucasian male is usually, you know, fits the profile perfectly, whereas Mm -hmm. they say an Asian female, for instance, I guess would be the other spectrum of that. Did you guys ever have any heat or did you experience any heat or was there ever you know a time in which you're like "Oh, we got to get out of here yeah lots
1: um you know heat unfortunately it's just an inevitable part of the job right and if you're not getting heat you're probably not doing it right you're not being aggressive enough so yeah there were were quite a few run-ins but you, you know you're not doing anything illegal so you shouldn't really have anything to fear okay sometimes casino security take matters into their own hands and they do stuff that they shouldn't but it's not like the movies right they're not going to beat you up and if they do i mean you're probably set for life in terms of financial security because the payout from any kind of litigation will be huge right so
0: it's a plus ev play to get beat up
1: yeah well yeah <laughs> it's hard to say after all those lawyer fees and stuff like that yeah right? and all the, the, the hassle that you go through to get that money in the end but definitely a negative ev play for the casino right to do stuff like that so usually they will ask you to leave maybe trespass you like read you the trespassing act, so that on in their eyes you know you shouldn't be allowed to come back uh, they'll quite often fly you as well but we were never running out of the door right we were just like okay our time's up here we better not push it anymore or we you know they won't let us play anymore or they've changed the procedure or something like that we may as well just look for other pastures.
0: Now if they trespass you is that do you, do you still go back it, if the play is well, good
1: enough? You know you'd you, it's best to ask a lawyer because it does depend I think on each situation and if there are there are different levels of trespassing. I know some people, they actually, the casino force you to sign stuff. Other stuff, you know, I've had just like security guards try and remember what the trespassing act is as I'm walking out of the door and they haven't even finished it. And step like, yeah. So I, I don't bother trying to go back into casinos that I've been trespassed from. But I know people that have and with mixed results.
0: Fair enough. Okay, so you're doing this full time. You're being, you're, you guys are getting a lot of success. Um, you're working really hard. The bankroll is building up. Um, mm. The family back home understands. Wow, he's actually really making it. This is great. We can't believe. You know, this is. You know, did they have? <laughs> I don't think they've ever said this is great. But yeah. But okay. Okay. <laughs> have- okay. No. no. Let yeah. me change that. Wow. Argument, wow. Yeah. I can't believe it. Did that? That have to come out. I can't believe it like i said my family is very
1: british so they don't deal in like strong superlatives or exclamations it's just kind of like okay and then you just read their body language
0: right? oh okay yeah i got you so uh, let me try to figure out the reaction i'm trying to keep guessing so all right yeah. um so i not i can't believe it wow oh uh, no there's no wow sorry that's not british um I'm, <laughs> I'm getting there i'm trying to get there so instead they're like um cheers he did it <laughs> Let's let's settle with that. That's all. okay. <laughs> That's <good. laughs> okay. So so and and now you're working really hard. You guys are saying you're working. There's you're on call 24 hours. Um, are, do the games eventually now dry up, or what, what, you know yeah. how, what happens? Yeah.
1: then. Certainly in Vegas, you know, our face became quite well known. Our faces became quite well known. So we had to start traveling outside of Vegas more, and and, and this is why. America is kind of the promised land for the AP, right? For the professional gambler. There are casinos everywhere and there are big casinos everywhere. And you can fly very easily from one to the other. So we started to venture out of Vegas a little bit once our our time was drawing up a little bit in Vegas itself. And yeah, this was one of the things I loved about being a professional gambler as well, is it took me to parts of the country I would never go to, right? And we fly to these weird airports and weird parts of the country, hire a car, drive through some, I don't know, like, Iowan farm, countryside, right? And, and until we eventually get to the casino and we're super tired, but we try and play. And Yeah, I mean, it gets it does start to wear a little thin, you know, by the third or fourth day, but the first few days are super exciting and the adrenaline's there. And like I said, it was an aspect of being a professional gambler I actually love.
0: Beautiful. Will, so you said you went around the country, um, East Coast, West Coast, North, South, everywhere, all different parts? Was there any one in particular, any fond memories or any story that you could remember that sticks out? Well, actually, I remember
1: one of our biggest wins. It was actually on a play with another guy that I was very close to in Vegas. And we'd heard about this game. Actually, I'd heard about this game through – just a really kind guy on an internet forum again just the value of network right and 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 building connections with people and I actually flew in because I didn't have a proper visa in the U.S. um, there's no there's no visa for blackjack players given out by U.S. homeland security unfortunately so (laughs) I needed to do three months in the U S and then I'd have to fly out back to the UK or I'd go somewhere else. Maybe look at casinos somewhere else in the world and then come back to the U S maybe three months later. And so on this trip I flew, this is on the Northeast of the U.S. I flew in from the UK. My friend flew out from Vegas. He brought the cash with him cause I didn't want to fly internationally with the cash. And this was going to be quite a big play. We were quite excited about it, Spanky. And so he bought up about 80000 in cash, something like that, so that we could really go after it. And sure enough, the play was as successful as we'd hoped. I think we made, across the two days, it was a little over 130000 something like that, of playing pretty hard. And we were just super elated, right, super excited. And all we wanted to do now was just get the money home, get back to Vegas and go out and and celebrate. So we booked our flight back to Vegas and I I can, I can remember it now. Like we we dropped, we dropped the rental car off, got on the rental car shuttle and we're just being idiots. Spanky. It's like, it's kind of like in a movie where, you know, something's about to go wrong, right? Everything's gone too well so far. You know, the movie is still 45 minutes away from finishing and the guys are just being idiots and the music's not quite right. Something's about to go wrong. Yeah. Right? So I remember my, my colleague, let's call him um, Mike, right? And he, he thought the best thing we could do to ensure we got the cash through security at the airport. Was Now, first, I should say, there's nothing illegal about carrying cash through an airport, right? But unfortunately, large amounts, um, the TSA, they sometimes confiscate it because they interpret that it might be drug money or obtained through illicit means. So it's definitely an interaction you want to avoid. So Mike, in the interest of um, ensuring that we weren't picked off by TSA with, with this cash, we put... Half of the money spread out at the bottom of my hand luggage and half of the money spread out at the bottom of his. So we had about like 110, 120 in each bag. And yeah, we went to go and check in, got off the rental car shuttle, went to go and check in, still being idiots, um, goofing around. And I remember I I was one of the stupid things I was doing was just twirling my hand luggage on the spot. I never realized at this point, I could just spin my, my hand luggage bag, like three sixty on the spot. And I was like, oh, you know, this is fun, whatever. <laughs> Again, just being an idiot. Got, okay, and then finally we got to the, the TSA and I'm like, okay, well, engage brain, right? This is, this is the one thing where we really need to be on it. And I remember I had my laptop in my hand luggage. So I need to get that out for, to put it through the TSA thing. And got my bag, put it up, opened it up. And all I could see in my bag was women's clothes. And I think for like two seconds, and I'm like, "Oh, can I swear, Spanky?" Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm like, "Holy shit!" Right? And oh my God. I realized off the rental car shuttle, I picked up the wrong hand luggage. I picked up a bag that looks just like mine, but instead of 120,000 in cash, my laptop, and all my stuff in it, it's just women's clothes. Oh man! Right. And my friend, Mike, he's like, you know, he's going full out on the expletives at this point, thinking like, what the fuck is happening here, right? And I'm like, okay, like, like we were saying earlier, right? You take some hits, right? And it's all about <laughs> getting back up and trying to figure out what the hell you do next. And I go, okay, right, the first thing I need to do is get back on that, like, okay, actually, the first thing I do is try and find a phone number or something in the back, some sort of ID. That means I can perhaps call the person that might have picked up my, I don't even know if this this lady's picked up my bag off the rental car shuttle or just known that this is not hers and left it there and told someone that someone's got her bag in the airport or something. But anyway, I can't find any ID in the bag. Then I'm like, okay, now I need to get back on the rental car shuttle and see if my bag is still on there. So I leave Mike at the terminal. And this is a big, I can say this is Logan, right? It's a huge airport. I think there's something like six terminals this rental car shuttle stops at six terminals before it goes back to the rental car one and I think it we it got to our one like kind of one of the last ones on the route before it did its loop again and so I got back on the rental car shuttle I couldn't find my bag and I'm thinking right if this lady has picked up the bag where is the most likely place she could be right now right hopefully not on a plane somewhere <laughs> Across the country, yeah. if she's still in this airport. Where might she be? Right, because also I didn't want to tell. I didn't want to alert airport security. If you say that like you've got a lost bag or you've got someone else's bag, that's problems enough as it is. But if there's like cash in it as well, like yeah. I thought all kinds of things could go wrong. So that was a last resort for me as well. So I'm like, I've got to find this lady before she gets on a plane and before she gets the hell out of this airport, right? So I think, okay, the most likely place she could possibly be if she has been on the rental car shuttle is probably at the rental car station, right? Because hopefully she got on one of those terminals before us and then went on to the rental car place after that. So I'm sitting on the rental car shuttle just pleading with the driver to go faster and like, you know, thinking, please, please, please just get there so I can go and check this place. I get there and... I like, burst through the doors of the rental car place, look around, run from one corner to another corner. I can't see my bag anywhere, spanky. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, you know, this money's just gone. And then as I'm walking out of the rental car place, I see this family just to my right-hand side. And they're kind of standing in a circle around their bags. Right? So I couldn't initially like, see the bags in there. So I'm like, okay, I better go and check like, all the bags within this circle to see if any of them look like mine. And then sure enough, I see what could be my bag in that little circle. And I think they were Spanish or Mexican. I can't remember. But I say, hey, sorry to interrupt in my very British accent. I'm like, is is this your bag? Like holding up the one that I had. And one of the ladies goes, yeah, that's my bag. I'm like, I think that (laughs) one in the circle there might be mine. Right? And she's like, Oh huh, no, I thought that was mine. I'm like, well, I open up the stuff. I'm like, is this your stuff? She's like, yeah, that's my stuff. I'm like, yeah, that's my bag right there. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, <laughs> don't worry about it. right? I'm delighted right now. And she, gives me, she gives me my bag. I sprint to the, the gents' toilets in the, in the rental car place, lock myself in a cubicle, open up the bag. There's my laptop. There's my stuff. And along the bottom of the bag, there's all the cash. Beautiful. <laughs> I woke up to the, the, the ceiling of the, of the toilets, like, thank whoever, whichever God saved me in that situation. And actually, we, you know, I got back to the terminal, saw Mike, we made our flight. I think we even had time for like a celebratory burrito, as, <laughs> as bad as airport burritos were. <laughs> that one tasted delicious. And then uh, got on the flight home and got back to Vegas and, and went and celebrated.
0: Wow. Great story, Will. Great story, brother. So okay, now you know let's um so now after the well, I didn't even know how to follow up with that story, that was so good. But um <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you I'll tell you one other little
1: uh twist and sting in the tail of that story. So we obviously go out and celebrate as soon as we get back to Vegas. And I think we went to yeah, there's a locals place called Blue Martini that like all the locals used to go to back then. I don't know if it still exists. We went out there, got really drunk on the drive back home. I get an email or a text that like I remember from one of my professional gambling friends and he's like, well, I don't know what you've been up to, but there's a flyer that's gone out about you. Right. And he had a friend that was in on the, one of the flyer systems. And sure enough, like the casino that we'd hit that week had put out word like straight away to watch out for these guys. So we had to actually lay low for a couple of weeks after that, especially, wow. especially like in that area. But,
0: yeah, it was still obviously all worth it. Oh man, that's just part of it. And and uh, that, when you see that flyer thing. Does that happen often, or of what you know? Like, the, is 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 that just part of being in the business?
1: Yeah, it is definitely part of being in the business, and it's not in you know the these flyers. They're kind of they're also kind of abused by casinos. They'll put like anyone on there. If you ever get a chance to look at them, you'll just see like. $5 card counter found at this casino here, right? And the threat to a casino's bottom line of $5 card counters is non-existent. Yeah. and So it's taking up space and diluting uh, the, the fly system for us, really, so that casinos tend not to pay too much attention to them after a while because they just get jaded by all these seemingly unnecessary entries. And you hope that they'll just forget about you if you stay off the most recent list for just a few weeks. Did you ever have to resort to disguises? Some players do. I, I I never really I never got heavy into disguises. I would do things like if a casino I was gonna go and play at and you didn't like me, had you know, maybe I'd played there before and made some money and I got some heat, and I wanted to go back, firstly I wouldn't play rated, which means I wouldn't give them any form of identification beyond proving my age. And secondly, I'd probably wear a hat. And ideally, I wouldn't be the one betting the money as well. So I would say no to disguises, but trying to lay low,
0: yeah, for sure. Gotcha. Now when you say you wouldn't be the one betting the money, um, these are big players that you would would get in, is uh, how hard is it finding big players when you have a play? Um, outside the team do you you try to look for guys that you know are clean or sometimes you obviously have to you know go within your team yeah you
1: know obviously the easiest thing to do is just
0: go within your team so if you think you can
1: get away with that you do it and it's just the benefit of experience right you know big players they do sometimes it is it can be just boiled down to them just following instructions right following signals from across the table but there are so many things that can go wrong and so many things you can screw up. That Having a, a big player that actually knows what they're doing by themselves without needing instructions is a big bonus. But it's not, again, it's, I, I have actually got a story that involves my family on that one as well. But usually it's not something we got involved with. But I can tell you about the time that my family came out to Vegas and we tried to get them to be our big players if you want, Spanky.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah, I'd
1: love that. So yeah, take your family to work day. You're a <laughs> your, your very British family on a on a Vegas experience weekend. But yeah, towards towards the end of my time out there, my family decided they wanted to come and see what this whole thing was about. Right, and then they'd never been to Vegas, or I think actually my my dad had like 40 years ago on a road trip or something, but it, it's never on their like annual vacation list. So it had been a while. And my parents and my sister flew out. And I remember about five days before, I was sitting down with my team, and we had we had this play in Vegas, and it was a good play, good game, but we had the BP problem, right? We all had heat at this casino, so we didn't know what the best way or who we were going to use to help us get the money off the off the table. And I said, well, my my family are coming out. In a few days. <laughs> We could. I could ask them if they'd be interested in in being VPs. And so we agreed that was that was a good idea. And I read it by my family. My my dad was like, hell no. He just wanted
0: to <laughs> sit at
1: the bar and drink rum and cokes, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but my sister and my mum they were like, huh, uh, sure, yeah, why not? Let's let's give it a go, right? So I gave them a bit of homework to do, but the plan was that. I was gonna sit at the table with my cap on, giving them instructions on exactly how to play their hand. So I was sitting between both my sister and my mom, I could see both their hands, and I could also see my friend sitting the other side of the table, who was in charge of, let's just say, getting the information, right? And then signaling that information to me. So we had we were playing a game where we had information that we probably shouldn't have had, and I was using that information by and looking at my sisters and my mom's hand and deciding how they should play their hand accordingly. And the problem was we didn't know, this game is very dealer dependent. We didn't know when the dealer was gonna be on. So I said to my parents or my family, look, that's great you wanna do it, but I can't tell you exactly which night it's gonna be. We're just gonna be on call. And as soon as my phone goes and someone says game on, we gotta go there straight away and as luck would have it, it was actually about two hours after they arrived in from the UK. (laughs) They were just just sitting down. I thought the most Vegas way they could start their their trip was to go and have a buffet, right? And I (laughs) I took them to probably what was the the least offensive Vegas buffet I could think of, which is the Wicked Spoon one at the Cosmo. (laughs) And so they literally like, Honestly, their first plate, they've already paid the amount to eat all that they could want. They're thinking they could just sit down and relax for the next few hours, catch up on some food and some conversation, and then maybe get an early night after a long flight. But as soon as they sat down to begin their buffet, boom, my phone goes, and we have got to go straight to the casino and start playing. And it was one of those plays that actually went surprisingly smoothly. Um, both my sister and my mom made a reasonable amount of money. I think we came away with something like $9,000 in the end. And they had a lot of fun. And it was, you know, it was nice for me, Spanky, to like give my parents and my family a snapshot of, oh, of beautiful. what my life is like there. And to kind of meet some of my friends as well.
0: Oh, that's so, awesome. And yeah. they have an appreciation for exactly what you do. Exactly, exactly. So, well now, you know, this is all with the whole casino APing. Um, you're doing great, and, and, and you're making money. When now do you wind up going into sports betting and DFS? So,
1: yeah, I think I mentioned earlier, my, my time in Vegas lasted about three years. and Towards the end of those three years, there was just a number of things that was making me think that it was time to, to move on. The the first was just the customs, right? I was always getting heat from customs every time I came in. This, like, constant battle of, like, yeah, I'm just here to play poker. I'm not here to deal drugs or I'm not here to steal jobs or anything like that. And every time they would, like, threaten that they're going to send me home and every time I'd kind of believe them and eventually they'd let me in. And I, I just – I kind of got jaded by that whole thing. Also, the opportunities were starting to dry up, the ones that we were good at spanky like the stuff that we'd really honed our skills on in the last three years they were starting to dry up and i would always wanted to get into sports betting at some point point. and I mentioned earlier how I kind of missed out on the poker boom well at that point DraftKings and FanJul were just getting big and I thought I'm not going to miss out on this one right there's a lot of soft money here I reckon I can do a job here why don't I make this like my transition
0: into sports betting? So, you know, that's a big, big task to overcome to go from the casino to to fantasy sports. Um, What were the initial hurdles you you felt as if you had to overcome? Um, Mm.
1: Well, firstly, I wanted to do it with someone. Right, I was going back to the UK. I didn't, there wasn't any obvious US AP that I'd met who would be ready to do this and come to the UK and kind of set it up with me. So I started thinking, okay, I, I need a business partner. I, you know, I, I, it's so much more fun and I learn so much more if I work with someone who, who, who could that person be? And the guy that really stood out was actually one of my colleagues, Dan, who was at the accountancy company with me. And, so I reached out to him. I was like, hey, any interest? He was still there, right? He was like five, six years in now at this point, doing really well, you know, getting promoted every year. And here I was saying, hey, you should you should give all that up now and come and try and be D- DFS.
0: <laughs>
1: well, yeah, I I don't think i would even narrowed it down to DFS at that point. I just said to him, like, oh, let's just do this sports betting thing. It'll be fun. And he's like, no, right? Like, that's... <laughs> Like you have you haven't thought about this hard enough. And I'm interested because he was also very bored of being a tax accountant, but we need to focus a bit more and figure out what exactly it is we're gonna do. So yeah, we zeroed in on the DFS thing. And we just started putting one foot in front of the other. We we started with with soccer right DFS soccer which obviously a sport we as Brits we both know well and enjoy and we looked at some of the lineups people were building on that and we were like yeah we can do better than that we can do better than that but there's still a question as to like how you're going to go about it right and we decided quite early on that even though neither of us knew how to code coding would be the best way to try and beat this DFS game right? Both in terms of like coming up with projections each week, then building your lineups, getting hold of all the data. We had no interest in doing all of that manually every single week. Right? So we said, okay, we're both going to have to learn how to code and we're going to then use TFS as this kind of learning tool that's going to hopefully pay us a bit of money along the way to get our teeth into sports betting a bit. And yeah, Dan, he quit his job eventually. Well, no, it took him about three months, four months. We both started going at it full time. And we got, I mean, we were lucky Spanky because it was so soft back then. Like DFS is not what it is now. There was a lot of overlay, right? There was a lot of competition between the companies putting in more money than they were taking out, which made the contest much easier. People didn't really know how to play at that point. We'd approached it now with a much more analytical point of view that was helping us identify picks perhaps others weren't able to identify and it gave us that perfect platform to then build on let's just say our sports betting
0: career in the dfs world will they say that you know you know there's only a, a small percentage of the participants take you know pretty much all the money out um did you ever uh, how did you did you find the way maybe to learn as you were coming up, how to become one of those guys? Is there a way that, or a method that you may have used to learn from these other pros? Because I, I, you know, with respect yeah. to- the- Yeah, you,
1: you definitely look at the guys that are out there betting the big money and the ones that you respect, and you try to you try to reverse engineer what they're doing. Gotcha. It's the same with sports betting. Yeah. Like, you know, if you know the guy out there that's making a lot of money betting, Baseball, and you want to try and figure it out, and you can see what bets. Firstly, you can see what bet. That's half of the puzzle in sports betting, right? Being able to identify what bets he's making, and then once you know that, reverse engineering why he's making those bets. In DFS, that first part of the puzzle is a bit easier because you can just see everybody's lineups, right? You can see basically who everyone's betting on. So you can look at the guys who you think know what they're doing, and then try to say, okay, why are they doing those things? And why, why is he on this particular player? Because we were nowhere near this player. And then you go, oh, maybe it's because of weather, right? Or maybe it's because of the position he's playing that day. And, yeah, you definitely try to use that to your advantage in the long run.
0: Now, in DFS, let's just say it's a head-to-head matchup. Can you see both guys' lineups if you're not involved in that matchup? Or yeah, you have- you,
1: you, uh, well, it's, it's theoretically possible for you to see it because you need to know the link, right? You co- they don't make it easy for you to find it but it's not like you need to be logged into that account to see that contest. So if someone sends you the link to the contest or you can now reverse engineer how the link building system works based on
0: which contest it is, then you can see what's going on. Even if it's out a contest, let's just say it's just one head-to-head daily matchup where everyone puts up, you know, a thousand or 5,000 bucks or whatever, and it's just one, one, one-on-one. Um, do you, Is there a way to see what the, you know, because I would think that's, you know, to be able to find out what your opponent uh, is using, and then you'll be able to reverse engineer it that way. Do you mean
1: a matchup that you yourself have entered or a matchup that someone else is playing against someone else and you just want to be a bystander and thing see what's going on?
0: Both. Like, is there, you
1: know, both, it, you know? Yeah, so certainly if you've, if you've entered the matchup, you can see what the, exactly what the other guys exactly can do, right? If you haven't entered the contest, it's still theoretically possible to see what lineups people have picked in that contest. But it's usually not necessary because the lineup that one guy has entered in his high stakes contest is very often exactly the same as the one that he's entered in the low stakes contest, ah. which which you've entered anyway. So you know, without having to take him on for 10000 you can take him
0: on for $10 and see exactly what he's up to. Beautiful. So that's the thing. So, so I'm just trying to think if, if you want to put somebody on Queer Street, you, you know, if, as a professional, you don't, you're not going to put you're not going to use the same lineup for the ten dollar contest as you use for the ten thousand dollar contest because the ten thousand dollar contest that's the bread and butter um you don't want to show people your hand, so to speak um, yeah. That, that is definitely, I understand the logic of that. I just don't know anyone
1: that's, that's doing that. That's but the, if Spanky starts playing DFS, maybe that's what we need to watch out No, for.
0: no, Spanky's not playing DFS. I was just saying, I'm just trying to think out because I've never, I'm, I'm, I like, I know, I, I, I hear a lot of people talking about fantasy and making lineups. I just never was into it. I was just always uh, just betting okay. sports. So, all right, so DFS, you wind up getting successful. It's soft, but you still have to have skills because the VIG in DFS is a lot higher than it is in sports betting. So to to overcome that VIG, even though it's soft, is still a challenge, but you guys are still doing well at it.
1: Yeah. um, But over the years, I would say by about year three or four, it was noticeable how everyone biased up. And that's when the rate really starts to suck, right? Because it doesn't matter, the rate doesn't matter so much. If after it, you still got a 30% edge or 40% edge. Mm -hmm. But when you're dealing with like single digit edges, then a 15% rate really starts to eat away. So there was a tough time for a while because those, those same years, years three and four, we were also trying to challenge ourselves and trying to take on new markets, right? Both new DFS markets, but also markets outside of DFS because it was firstly, that's why we got into this thing in the first place. We didn't get into this just to do DFS. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it was becoming apparent to us that DFS was drying up. Right? It, was never, it wasn't going to carry on paying the way it was paying at the moment. So we made the decision to focus on golf now as well as soccer. And yeah, it didn't, it didn't go so well to begin with. We, we, were, we were overconfident in our edge. And I think that was partly because of how easy we'd initially found soccer DFS. Also just my attitude was like learning skills in the professional gambling world and trying to compete with other people in the industry or get on the same level as other people in the industry. I'd always been surprised that, okay, it was hard to get there but not as ridiculously hard as I thought it was gonna be. right? (laughs) Whereas golf, it, it really was, right? Like golf was tough. And there were a lot of very smart guys in the industry already who were really, really hard to catch up with. And we were overconfident to start with. So we started losing on golf and at the same time our edge on our bread and butter stuff, the DFS stuff, was drying up as well. And so, yeah, I guess it comes a little bit back to that same situation that I found myself in with with blackjack early on where you start to doubt yourself. You start to really draw on... You know your grit and determination and, and that passion that that fire in your belly that allows you to keep going in those situations because you love what you do right and you want to be successful at it and thankfully you know we won we weren't hemorrhaging money i think we even still made a bit of money years three and four and enough to pay the bills so to speak but it's not the trend curve was down right so if the trend curve continued to go down then we would be in trouble But years five, and and now we're into year six now. Thankfully, we we turned things around. We improved our DFS models. We improved our golf models. And now we're getting overconfident again and starting to think about what what markets we can take on next. Beautiful.
0: That's great, man. I love it. It's like you took another walk in a park, so to speak. Exactly. You just to be able to bring, ground, get grounded again, and say, and you were not even lose a longer no. walk. Though, thank This <laughs> is like, <laughs> like I get it. yeah, yeah. This wasn't a hundred hours type thing. Where this was, got yeah. you no. Know, I understand, but that's great, man. I'm, I'm so happy for you guys that you guys wind up, um, getting it together and and you're, you're, you're very successful. And um, I wish you nothing but more success in the future. I appreciate that, Smokey. Um, so, Will, and before we close, the name of the podcast is called Be Better Betters. And, um, you know, you've now been a gambler and, and, and you've seen it and, and done a lot and you've been around the world um, doing this. Is there any advice that you could give the listeners on, you know, if there's one thing that, that, that you've learned that, that you wish you would have known starting off or something that, you know, that it just took mm. you experience to pick up that you could just give somebody a nugget that man if i only knew this back then uh, you know it would have made my life so much easier how can you make someone a better better yeah good question
1: it may sound a bit cheesy or or something but kind of feeding off something i touched on earlier I, i would try to if if you're trying to decide between should i do a or should i do b should i take on this sports market or you know this one I would always try to choose the path where you think even if it all goes completely wrong and you don't make any money out of it you're going to learn something some skill when you come back to on another new project is going to be transferable to that other project so always choose the option where you think you're going to learn the most right because sometimes you know a lot of times in sports betting and, and professional gambling you you take yourself down past that actually there's there's no rainbow there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? And, and that's just part of it. That's the scouting again, right? Like that's the 80% scouting or whatever. But if you can learn something along the way, because to, to have explored this opportunity, maybe you don't need to learn to code, but you need to learn some new aspect of coding or some new statistical technique or something like that. But, so even if nothing comes of in terms of financial return, at least you have that new skill, you've upskilled. you've developed, and you can then apply that to your next project in a way that makes you a a more dangerous better at that point.
0: I love it, never stop learning and never stop building that skill base.
1: Yeah, I think it's undervalued, right? People think about the money, the financial return for each project, but to me, a project is a lot more interesting if, as well, along that process, you're gonna learn something that you can then apply the future projects
0: as well well i love it beautiful advice man so wise thank you so much will for coming on it was really a pleasure my friend um, i really enjoyed
1: it thank you
0: really it great stories and and uh i wish you nothing but the best and you know um i hope to get together soon buddy
1: likewise yeah i hope uh, this whole thing is over soon and we can do a face-to-face meet up soon
0: absolutely brother thanks so much all right spanky cheers cheers man I really enjoyed that interview with my man, Will. Young Gun knows his stuff, been around the game for several years now. And I think there's a lot of stuff to learn from what Will said. Those walks in a park are so big to be able to pick yourself back up, bounce back, and keep it rolling. It's what separates the pros from the not-so-pros. So, anybody out there listening, you know. You gotta be a good loser to be a long term winner. Thanks so much for the time. Until next time.